Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Habakkuk. That is a strange-sounding name. I would think you would agree. We hear all kinds of pronunciations, by the way, for the book of Habakkuk in Bible college. We hear Habakkuk. We hear Habakkuk. We hear tobacco uh, and Chewbacca. Those are the most common pronunciations. In spite of the silly name, um, the book addresses some very practical questions. For example, this one I think is pertinent in, in my life, uh, maybe in yours. How in the world am I going to make it through this season? Anybody ever had that thought, the season of my life? How can I possibly do this? Have you ever felt like the wheels were falling off the bus? Um, Habakkuk lived around 600 B.C., the prophet. Things were unraveling rather quickly in the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel. It was known as Judah. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, so the whole thing is called Israel. The northern half uh, is called Israel. Um, It had been taken away already, the northern half, and carried off into captivity. Um, in one of history's major events, into exile, half the nation was led. So the southern kingdom is sitting there on pins and needles, waiting until the Babylonians muster enough courage to come after them also. And there was some really bad leadership that kind of took place during this time. Some of their circumstances were even beyond their control. A drought had absolutely devastated the land. The fields hadn't produced fruit. The cattle had starved to death or been stolen. Any of your lawns, by the way, brown right now or close to it. We just haven't had a lot of rain this summer. Um, Could you imagine an actual drought? Um, where things die and dust is everywhere and fields aren't um, yielding and so forth. And this is what Habakkuk writes in chapter 3, verse 17, describing the situation, if you're following along in your Bible. The fig tree does not blossom. There is fruit uh, on the vines, the produce of the nor fruit, excuse me, on the vines. I knew I had a typo in my notes here. The produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food. The flock is cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. This is basically like a country music song, isn't it? Um, That's what it sounds like. Uh, My wife left me, I lost my job, and my truck broke, and my dog died, okay? Um, And there's this... um, it's, it's like in Europe, you know, um, post-World War II, the whole region is about to collapse socially from starvation. The ransackers of Babylon are knocking at the door. Um, this looming threat is presenting itself. God had already told other prophets um, that Babylon uh, would soon invade the south and destroy it. So again, this is like a movie that you know is going to end poorly and you're forced to watch it. And so the people are waiting, and Habakkuk says, essentially, how, God, are we going to make it? Maybe this morning you're facing a crumbling marriage. Uh, maybe you're uh, facing some financial difficulties. I know a church fam, uh, family that's in the middle of a uh, uh, storm financially. Um, Maybe it's some new medical diagnosis. Um, Maybe a relationship of years just ended and you are looking into your future with no prospects in mind whatsoever and you're lonely. Habakkuk, I hope, 
is helpful for you today. I think we all ask the question, God, how are we going to make it? How are we going to make it? Secondly, I think we ask the question, God, where are you? Where are you? I thought you loved us. Um, Listen to Habakkuk's opening statement in chapter 1, if you will, verses 2 and 3. If you have had seasons where you have questioned God, if you have had seasons where you've been angry at God, if you've lifted your voices and hands toward God, you will find yourself among the authors of the Bible. Just listen to what he said. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you idly look at wrong? So can we just pause right there and say that if there's any honesty in the room at all this morning, I think most of us have felt like this. Um, God, why do you sit idly by while people suffer? Does anybody dare to admit that you've thought that? We all have. Um, God seems to just sit there lazily while hell unfolds before our eyes. Any lost watchers in the room, by the way, to show that hit roughly a decade ago, maybe a little less, and lasted some six seasons. Faithful lost watchers. No, you're the only one, John. Any other lost watchers in the room? It was pretty big show. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're waiting until the end of this thing for it to all make sense. That's what everybody's waiting for. And we should have known, right, that something wasn't right when there were like polar bears living in a tropical climate. Like, you just can't make sense of that, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't survive. But we were committed, those of us who watched it, with this thing wrapping up neatly and all of our questions being answered. And little did we know that the title of the show had more to do with the way we would feel at the end of the last season than it did anything that happened into, uh, in the show itself. And sometimes we wonder, is this how life's going to be? where we don't have the answers to anything, even at the end. Shakespeare said, A tale told by an idiot, sound and fury signifying nothing, no happy ending, no redeeming purpose in all that has happened. That's the way some of us feel. Leads to a third question. God, how is this fair? How many of us have asked that one? How is this fair? And these comparisons begin. Babylon, which was causing Israel all these problems, was a far more wicked nation than Israel. So Habakkuk asked God, God, how is it fair that we're going through this, that Babylon is getting our sons and daughters? How is this fair? Verse 13 of chapter 1. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? These are all questions we ask. And the book of Habakkuk is is rather unique in that it isn't like um, a a, a, uh, prophecy directed at a nation. It's really a conversation between Habakkuk and God that he would record sometime later. 
And after his series of complaints, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Now I will take my stand at my watch posts and station myself on the tower and look out and see what God will say to me and what I will then answer concerning my own complaint. (laughs) And then an argument ensues between he and God. And God flexes his muscles a little bit, and Habakkuk shuts up. And as he does, he gives one of the greatest statements of faith we have read toward the end. We're going to read that at the end of today's message. Um, But this book is all about the journey of trust that a man is on, that's happening in his heart. Several portions of the Old Testament are like this. Rather than simply telling us what God says, the writer opens up his heart and lets us peer into his struggle. Have you ever read the book of Job? We see that. We see him being completely vulnerable with his pain. The Psalms are famous for this. Um, Even the book that Pastor Dean walked you through, the book of Jonah, is about Jonah struggling inside to love people like God does. And in this way, Habakkuk is incredibly candid. He says things, and we're like, wait a minute, you can actually say that to God and live? I had no clue. Indeed, you can. God is big enough to handle your questioning. And when Habakkuk questions God, God doesn't all of a sudden hit him back with, you know, how darest thou talkest uh, to me in that mannereth. Um, thou artest a fledgling worm to thou, to your whatever creator, Habakkuk, <laughs> you know. Um, no, God uh, seems to welcome Habakkuk's questions, oddly enough. And he welcomes ours, I think. Think about it for a minute. God even saw fit to, for this book to make it into the canonization of the scriptures. Isn't that a bit odd, this individual just blabbering to his creator? God felt this conversation might be helpful for us in some way. Um, why would he think that? Well, doubt may just be one of God's greatest tools in ultimately strengthening our faith. Just think about it for a moment. God wants to grow our faith. If our faith is not tested at times by doubt, it has to be a shallow and fragile faith. And this is exactly what you'll see with the prophet. He's strengthening his faith. You may have heard the story of Alan uh, Alan Gardner, the English missionary. He was shipwrecked off this remote island off the coast of South America. And he was going to a new place to start a new mission. They tried to stick it out and wait on somebody to come and rescue them. Nobody came. Finally, they died. Uh, Their team did of starvation. And several months later, when the rescuers finally found them, they discovered his body and underneath him, his personal journal. And they began reading it, and the last thing inscribed in it was Psalm 3410. It says, those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then underneath that was his final phrase, I am overwhelmed 
with a sense of the goodness of God. How can that be? How can that be when you smell yourself almost rotting? And most of us read it and we, and we think, did, it, did he not realize he was dying of starvation? Shouldn't he have been scared? Shouldn't he have been angry with, with God? I think he knew some, some sense of what Habakkuk learned. And I want to share it with you because I, I think there's a power in Jesus that will not only give us strength in moments of tragedy, which I believe he does, but all of our lives through. And it's called the power of hope. Can you guys say that word with me this morning? Hope. Let's try it one more time. Hope. Yeah. Um, Hope is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. You may be familiar... um, with this uh, legendary experiment conducted by John Hopkins University. It's kind of sad if, if you're an animal enthusiast, but they were trying to determine how long rats could swim. And so they just threw them in the water, and they'd last about 10 minutes. But if they took the rat out just for a moment and put the rat back in, they discovered uh, two to three times during that first 10 minutes, they discovered that rats could actually swim for more than 60 hours. What is the only thing that was injected or introduced into that experiment? It was hope. They thought they were going to be pulled out again. Now, my purpose this morning is giving you mill rats some hope. No, I'm just <laughs> teasing um, so you can keep swimming, you see. Um, wasn't that inspirational, that illustration? It's just beautiful. <laughs> Fireworks. I can see it in your heart and eyes. For those of you who feel like God is away without leave, for those who are angry, for those who are numb to the things of God, if you're even expressionless in your heart, I want you to find true hope. This isn't a pep talk. Supernatural, God-given hope. Habakkuk's chief complaint is that the world doesn't appear to be ruled by a good, all-wise, all-powerful God. Philosophers call this the problem of evil. Everybody under the sun wrestles with it. And it can be traced back to a 5th century B.C. Greek philosopher named Epicurus who basically said if God really is all-powerful he could stop all the evil and if he was really loving he would want to stop all of the evil therefore the fact that pain exists and that suffering and injustice run rampant um, on the earth means that either God is not all-powerful or that he is not Good. And so the philosophy goes. Um, A way to summarize it might be if he could, stop it. He should. But since he doesn't, he isn't. And that problem is age old. In fact, you'll notice that Habakkuk framed the exact philosophy long before 
Epicurus did. And you need to understand, we're not asking new questions. These questions are centuries old. Sincere people of faith struggle with these things. There's some very dear friends to someone who's very close to me who is walking them through, trying to show them that God, that that this philosophy, this problem of of evil can coexist with a good, all-powerful God. And it's in God's answer to Habakkuk's questions that we find some help. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. God says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In other words, I'm doing something absolutely amazing through these things that you're observing with your eyes, through the captivity, through the drought. Um, Your plan is not my plan. My plan is bigger. My plan is broader. My plan is more helpful. My plan is more thoughtful than yours. And since you asked... In the invasion of the Babylonians, I'm setting up this situation that will most clearly display the work of my son, Jesus Christ. It's beyond anything that you could understand in the moment, tobacco. You wouldn't even believe it if I gave you the details, Chewbacca. But it will lead to my glory if you just trust in me. And ultimately, it'll lead to your salvation. Verse 14 of chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't you understand, God saying, the turn of events that I've orchestrated in which your uh, questions lie is going to lead to more people coming to salvation. Did you really think, Habakkuk, that you were more compassionate than I? I desire that none shall perish, God's saying. Verse 4, Behold, man's soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Here's what I want you to hear um, this morning. If you are going to walk with God in the world, it will have to be by faith. It'll have to be. You may not ever find the clarity that you're looking for in this life. There is an unlimited amount of background knowledge and future knowledge that we cannot fully see. Chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The last thing God does is give Habakkuk this vision of himself sitting high on a throne above it all. God's effectively saying, if I'm still on my throne, you can surely trust me with all of your unanswered questions. And let's just get philosophical for a minute. There's this illustration I'd like to share with you that I've heard. Imagine a commando in World War II who is dropped behind the enemy lines, posing as a German officer so he can infiltrate the camp, and his role is to destroy the the gas chambers. 
And let's say that en route to doing so, imagine he sees a German officer preparing to execute a Jew at gunpoint. This is an evil he could stop by simply attacking the shooter. But at what cost? He might save, if he gets to the gas chambers without blowing his cover, the lives of of many. More lives would be lost in the long run if he prevents this individual death, but does not stop the gas chambers from destroying thousands. So is it possible that a good person could allow something evil even though the good person can stop it? Yes. He might allow a lesser evil to prevent an even greater one. I'll give you another one. When I was a kid, I was riding, uh, getting onto a ski lift with my dad. My dad took me um, snow skiing at uh, Hawk's Nest. It was the name of the resort in North Carolina. I didn't fully get, you know how those things pop you in the back of the hamstrings? And it's just, you know, when you're a kid, you're short, you know. And I didn't fully get my seat underneath me when the thing hit me. And I continued to, like, wrestle my way on um, in these slippery ski bibs. And there was probably some teenage kid who was working the lift and playing duck hunt on his Nintendo Game Boy, and he didn't see me struggling. And um, did I mention my dad was on the lift with me? And my dad's, uh, he's not just sitting there watching, he's trying to help, um, but we're in this thick ball of clothing and goggles and gloves and skis and poles, and this has progressed to the point that I slip out of the lift, and my dad has me by the wrist, and my whole body is suspended beneath the lift, the chair. And I'll never forget my dad looking at me in the eyes and saying this, Zach, listen to me. We're only going to go higher. This isn't going to make sense, son, but I'm going to let you go now. I'm going to drop you. You're going to have a short fall, but you're going to be okay. And he let me go. And to my knowledge, the dude was still playing dunk hunt on his Game Boy. And he continued to ride the top, top, and by the time he got to the bottom, they were with me and so forth and and so on. But I want to ask you again, is it possible for a good person to allow something painful to happen if they know that something better is going to come out of it in the end? And is it not possible that a lot of the pain that God allows us to go through in this life might be akin to being dropped from a ski lift before the risk becomes fatal? Just because you can't see the full picture does not mean that you've correctly understood the full picture. If I ask you, is there an elephant in this room? Literally, it wouldn't take but one head on the swivel look to answer no confidently there is no elephant in the room. But if I said, um, is there any head lice in this room? Well, you couldn't answer that as confidently, could you? 
In fact, if you see somebody scratching their head, you might hold them in a little suspicion here. Here's the point. Understanding all of the purposes of God is not like finding an elephant in a small room. It is not that easy. He sees so much that we don't see. He's orchestrating so much that we can't understand. Faith trusts that he's still on the throne. And this leads us to Habakkuk's great statement of faith, which, as I said, is one of the greatest in all the Bible. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. O Lord, I have heard uh, the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. And then um, over the the next... um, Uh, Several. I'm I'm not quite to that statement yet. Forgive me. Um, Over the next 15 verses or so, Habakkuk is going to recount the Exodus in poetic language. Okay? I'll just walk you through this quickly. Verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. This was a reference to God's appearance at Mount Sinai. Verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plagues followed at his heel. You remember the great plagues. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging river swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. This was the splitting, a reference to the splitting of the what? Of the Red Sea at the Exodus. The sun and moon stood still in their place in the flash of your glittering spear. This is a reference to how the sun stood still in, uh, with Joshua. And then in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying them bare from thigh to neck. This was about how God brought the nation of Egypt to its knees after it had enslaved the Israelites. So in closing, this is what I'll say, Habakkuk meditates on the exodus to remind him that God is faithful. His people are about to go into captivity. This is no different than a replay of what has already happened in the history of the people of Israel. And I'll say this. It reminds me of just a few things. First, we are not innocent people suffering as some would suggest. In Exodus, if you'll remember, God was delivering his people from slavery. But the slavery, their captivity, was a picture of the self-imposed captivity that they had allowed themselves to get in in their hearts to sin. And my point is that God did not create us to suffer. God created a human race, and we brought our suffering on ourselves by rejecting him. That is a rebellion that every single human being has participated in. I'm not saying your individual suffering was a result of your individual sin, as if God is paying you back. I am saying that your suffering in general exists because humanity has rejected God, and we are a part of that rejection. The second conclusion he draws is this. God is not short on power. God manipulated even the most powerful of nations at will. He split the oceans. God's not limited by anything. And then third thing he concludes with, and I'll leave it with you, God has not given up on us. He delivered us with a purpose. So he's thinking back, but he's also thinking at what's coming ahead. 
verses 16 and 17, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. This guy is terrified like Braveheart and his countrymen, William Wallace, were when the English or the British invaded Scotland. He's quaking. Habakkuk is dreading the sack and captivity of his country, but then listen at his newfound resolve after his conversation with God. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And then he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. That's the opening verse that we read together. Listen to his continuation. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Can hope exist right alongside grief? And despair. I would submit that it absolutely can. This is the kind of hope that God asks for us. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, uh, Lord, that you would um, give us today, no matter the depth of our despairing, no matter how we've projected into our future gloom and doom, I just pray that you'd remind us that your plan is bigger, more thoughtful, more compassionate, more gracious, more merciful than ours, and that you will our good. We love you. We trust you. We don't have clarity, but we have certainty that we are yours and that we're in great hands. In Jesus' name. Amen.